What kind of words come to mind when you think of the Old Testament Saint Jacob? Perhaps the first word for you is uh, deceiver or swindler, problem creator, uh, a, a man who was blessed by God, a man who struggled through life. Genesis chapter 28 is where we'll be tonight. And uh, what we will see is that Jacob has an encounter with God. And it seems as if Jacob's life is broken up into two main aspects. One is the conflicts that he's a part of. We saw the first conflict, really, which is his conflict with Esau in chapters 25 to 27. Here, God comes and encounters Jacob. That he, he, he comes and has a conversation with him. And then uh, the next several chapters, the next three chapters, have Jacob in another conflict. And this is a conflict between his father-in-law, uh, Laban, and himself. And then God encounters him again at Mahanaim in chapter 32 and at the end of chapter 32 at Peniel. And then Jacob's life is uh, struck with conflict again with Esau when he's fearful for his life, Jacob is, and that's followed again by an encounter with God. And what's unique about Jacob in the Old Testament is not that he has conflicts in his life because Esau and Laban have conflicts too, right? But the difference between Jacob and those two men is that Jacob had encounters with God, that God came and, and interacted with Jacob. Now, God did come to Laban, but, but it was only to warn him. And, uh, and he didn't come to Esau at all. And so what we should see from this man and what God is doing is that God was doing something special in his life because he was chosen by God. That, that, that God is wanting to assure Jacob that His grace is upon him. And, um, and He does this by encountering him, that is, having an interaction with him following the conflicts that come up in Jacob's life. Now, I want to ask you a question, but I want to be careful how I form this question. And I want you to be careful with how you hear the, the question and respond to it. So help me as, as I ask this question. And what I mean by that is I want you to think dispensationally when you, when you answer this question. Okay? Think with a dispensational frame of reference. That is, where are you within God's program with how God has dealt with people throughout the ages okay, when you answer this question? And here's the question. Have you ever had a conflict in your life where you are at odds with a family member or some group of people? Perhaps it was a result of your own sin. And after that conflict, you were so distraught and unsure about the future and what the consequences of that conflict would be. And then God came to you. And this is where I want you to put your dispensational glasses on. Think carefully here. And God came to you and He reminded you of His presence. He reminded you of His special grace upon you. He reminded you of His promises to, to you and that His eyes were always upon you. Have you ever had that happen in your life? Okay. Now, I'm not thinking about something where God comes to you, to you in a flash of lightning. That's why I, want, I said to answer carefully. Because in our dispensation, God doesn't come in that way. God comes in our era. Okay, when I say dispensation, I just mean era. When God comes in our era, He comes through what? The power of His Word. So, when you've been involved in a conflict, you, you didn't know what the future was going to bring. You didn't know 
what the next step even was to take, let alone what the step was 10 days from now or 10 years from now. And then God came to you and said, listen, okay, through His Word, you, you, you either interacted with His Word or someone from the church talked to you and encouraged you or somebody spoke a sermon and, and you heard it. Whatever the case, God encouraged you through His Word. That's the type of God that we have. I hope you can say yes, and, and maybe on multiple occasions you can say yes, that there have been several conflicts in my life, and God has encountered me through His Word. He has talked to me. He's reminded me of His grace and His gracious, His presence and His gracious leading in my life. Listen to what um, one commentator says about this passage that we're going to study this evening. This is Alan Ross. He said, we've seen God work in the same way over and over again in Scripture and in life today, where He takes a worldly individual and transforms him into a worshiper. Now, prior to this passage, he writes, Jacob was a fugitive as a result of his own deception. He was troubled and in search of a place in life. He was searching for a wife. But God is going to approach him here. And He approaches Jacob as a partner that I'm going to come alongside of you and you're going to be a recipient of my covenant promises, Jacob. And, and what I'm trying to make you into is a true worshiper. And there's a drastic transformation that's going to take place in the life of Jacob that can only come as a result of God encountering or God's intrusion into someone's life, specifically here Jacob. And I hope that that's happened in your life as well. That God has intruded into your life and shown you who He is. So let's look at this passage that we're going to consider this evening. I'll begin reading in chapter 28 with verse 10 and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north, and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. 
God commits Himself to be our God. And He does this by ruling over us, both within us and in us, uh, and, and through us. He, he rules, that is, from above, both in us and with us. God commits Himself to be our God. And so here, God is committing Himself to be Jacob's God. That's why you see God taking the first step. God's the one who, who interacts with Jacob. Jacob's not seeking God here. God comes to Jacob in a dream. And God, I think, appears to him to encourage Jacob to greater faith. Jacob's in a difficult time in his life because of this conflict that he's running from. His brother is wanting to kill him. Jacob's uncertain about life. He doesn't know what's going to happen around the next corner. He doesn't know who he's going to marry, how this promise is going to be fulfilled through him. And so God comes along and reminds him about the promises and encourages him to greater faith. First thing that we see in this passage is that God assures His people of His faithfulness through special revelation. God assures His people of His faithfulness through special revelation. Here, the special revelation for Jacob is a dream. For us, it's not going to be a dream. It's going to be His Word. That's the special revelation that we've been given. So for Jacob, it's a dream. We find that he's in Beersheba or he's departing from Beersheba. This is where he lived. This is in southwest Israel between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And so Jacob is making his way up all the way to the northeast side of Israel, actually outside of it on the way towards Assyria, to Haran, where his mother's family is from. Remember, Rebekah was chosen from Haran, which is actually where Abraham was from as well, that, that region. And so Jacob is told by his father Isaac in the, pre, in the previous passage, chapter 28, verses 1-10, through 10, you need to go up to Haran. You need to go up there and find a wife for yourself from the family, from the house of Laban. That's his uncle. And so this would not be a short trip. From Beersheba all the way up to Haran would be about uh, 21 days on foot. About 550 miles. And... Uh, so it would be quite a distance. And, and Jacob had only been a few days into his journey, uh, probably about 50 miles away from Beersheba. He's now in uh, this place that we're going to find out. is called Bethel today. And he stops at a certain place. We read about this in verse 11. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And what Moses does not do here is give the name of the city right away. What Moses could have done is said, Jacob stops at the city and it's the place that you now know Israel as Bethel. But he doesn't do that. And I think the reason that he doesn't do that is because he wants to keep his Israelite readers in suspense. That they are hearing this story likely in detail for the first time as they're reading it. And, and they know very well the city of Bethel. This place of worship. This place where there is a memorial stone for, uh, for worship to God. And um, and they would have immediately known the name of that city, but he withholds that name because he wants to show them the interaction that God had with Jacob here and why it's called Bethel. We'll see what that word means when we get to the end of the passage. So Jacob spends the night there, and notice in verse 11, it says he at the end of the verse it says he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. So in the ancient Near East, it was common practice of people to 
to use a stone for a pillow. Surprisingly enough, it would be hard for us to imagine what that would be like, but that was the that was the case for them. You wouldn't want to get in a pillow fight with someone from that time. It would probably be your last one. Um, but God encounters Jacob. This, this, By the way, the reason this is mentioned is because this is going to be used as a pillar later on. He's going to use that as a, as a pillar. But for now, uh, what we need to recognize is that he falls asleep and God encounters him in a dream in verse 12. Notice, God meets with Jacob. This is the first time, by the way, that Jacob meets with God. Verse 12 says, He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So in his dream, he sees a ladder. Now this word that's translated in our Bibles as ladder is only used one time in the entire Old Testament. Okay, That is the Hebrew word is only used one time in the entire Old Testament. And it's here. So we don't really have a good understanding of what this means. Now perhaps in the the Bible stories that you've seen growing up or maybe you've been taught, you see an actual ladder. That could be the case. We don't know for sure. But I would suggest it's probably more like an ancient Near Eastern stairway, similar to what you would have in a, a, ziggurat, a ziggurat, which was a, an ancient Near East temple structure that would be designed with stairways on each side. Okay, So it would all come to the center at the top. This is probably what they were making at the... the that's probably what they were doing at Babel. This tower that they were making was probably some sort of ancient Near East ziggurat where you'd be able to come up um, on either side. And this is probably what it is here because what we do have and what we do know is happening is that angels are ascending and descending. Hard to imagine how they would do that on the type of ladder that we're probably thinking about. I would, I would um, suggest that it's probably more like stairways. They're coming up and down all these different stairways. And... Um, uh, truly, we don't have to know exactly what this object is in order to understand the passage because that's not the point. The point is not the object. Rather, the point is what's going on. And that is that God is at the top of it, at the top of this ladder or stairway, and the angels are coming down and going up on this ladder. That's really the point. And... Um, so, so what we should understand is that this ladder or staircase is actually a bridge to God. That is, a bridge from God down to the earth. That God is not just far off. That He is distant and so, distant and so far away, so vast, so above us. And He is. But He's also near us. He comes and He descends and ascends uh, to earth and, and to heaven through His angels. He comes near. Notice in verses 13 to 15 that God interacts with Jacob by reminding him of His promises. God's promises in verses 13 to 15. Now this is important because Jacob had not received a word from God. He had only heard it from his father, perhaps his grandfather as well. Remember, Abraham uh, died when I think Jacob was around 15 years old. So Jacob would have known his grandfather. Um, he probably heard these promises from his father and grandfather, but, but would have not have had a personal interaction with God himself. And now he does. And so these promises are very important. Notice what kind of reminders God gives. He gives at least seven. First, a reminder of the land. 
for descendants. Verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it, that is the ladder or staircase, and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. So he reminds them about the promise that he had given to Abraham, that through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and that this land, as far as you can see, this land of Israel, this is yours. This land of Canaan, really, it was at that time. Then the second promise is found in verse 14, and that is, it's a reminder of his promise of great descendants. Verse 14, your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. Okay, that that's, should remind us of what he had said to Abraham. He took Abraham out and said, see all these stars in the sky? Try to count them. That's how many descendants you will have, Abraham. So he reminds them. This would have been a, a huge encouragement to a man who had lied and manipulated his way into God's blessing, to, to his father's blessing. Perhaps he thought, God's never going to give me the blessing now since I cheated my way into it. And so God is saying, no. Just like his father did in the last passage we saw last week, God is reminding Jacob, you know what? It's okay. okay. I've got it all under control. You are going to be the recipient of my blessing specifically that your descendants will be blessed. The third reminder is at the end of verse 14, and that is a universal blessing that comes through his family line. The end of the verse says, um, after it gives the directions there, it says, And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This promise was first given to his grandfather, Abraham, now is given as a reminder to him that it is through you, not through Esau, that all the families of the earth will be blessed. The fourth reminder is found in the beginning of verse 15, and that's a reminder of His presence. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. A reminder of God's presence. This is what I'm talking about when I say that God commits Himself to His people and rules above us, both in us and with us. That He's alongside of us. And this is what He does to Jacob. He commits Himself to him. That, that I am going to be your God, and you are going to be my, my person, and, and your people are going to be my people, and, and that I'm going to deliver you through grace. I'm going to rule you by my law. But not just from above, as if I'm a far off, distant God, but from... But, but within you and, and near you and with you. So a reminder of God's presence. Number five, a reminder of His providence. At the end of verse 15, For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Okay, we, could, we could call that His protection or His providential protection. That is that God provides for Jacob, that He protects him. That he, he hems him in, keeps him away from danger until he's received all that God has promised to him. Or at least until he's, he's received uh, the things that God has promised to him in this lifetime. And then, number six, a reminder of God's direction or a promise of God's direction. And um, I'm sorry, I, I uh, skipped ahead there in the middle of verse 15. And he will bring you back to this land. That's the idea of the protection. And then the end of the verse, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That, that God will direct your steps. That, that you may plan your ways, as Proverbs talks about later, as you will, um, a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. 
This is what God's doing with Jacob, that He is directing him along the way, that He's providing for him, He's fulfilling His promises, He's protecting him, and, and He's directing him. And then finally, the, uh, He's reminded again about His presence. At the end of verse 15 again, for I will not leave you. Okay, he already said that, and um, he already said that in verse at the beginning of verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And then at the end, he says, "For I will not leave you." So two times he reminds Jacob, "I am with you, Jacob. I am with you. That wherever you go, I'm there." And this should be a promise that rings in. Uh, in our head as well, when we are fearful of what is going to, to to take place, when we are unsure of the conflict that's going on in our life, we should be reminded of God's presence with us. That Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 20, that, that lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And God said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, that I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, that's a promise for New Testament believers. God will be with us wherever we go. The psalmist recognized this, Psalm 139, Where can I go from Your Spirit? Where can I hide from Your love? If I go to the heavens, You're there. If I go to the depths of hell, if I go to uttermost parts of the sea, to the highest mountain, You're there. You're everywhere. You're, it's not that You move on ahead of Me, that You hurry up and get there before I get there, but because You fill the earth with Your presence, You're there. So there's no place on the earth that I can hide from you. You're always there. And so, how ought we to respond when God reminds us afresh of His commitment toward us? How should we respond when God reminds us of His promises to us? And I hope the answer that you come up with is that, that we should respond in worship. And if God's reminding of his, his commitment to us, we ought to respond in worship. And this is exactly what Jacob does in verses 16 through 22. Verses 16 to 22, Jacob responds in worship. He does this in two ways. Number one, he creates a memorial. And number two, he talks to God about his commitment to God. Okay, so first, his memorial. This memorial, verses 16 through 19. Notice what Jacob sees as a result of this dream. He says, it says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, verse 16, and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Jacob recognizes that this is not some chance circumstances, circumstance or some weird dream that he had, but this is an actual encounter with God Himself. He says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And verse 17 tells us that he responds with a healthy fear of God. Verse 17, he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This is how believers respond when they encounter God throughout the Bible. Isaiah chapter 6. He recognizes that he is an unclean person, that he is a man of unclean lips, and he lives among people of unclean lips. Job, when he recognizes God for who He is at the end of Job, Job chapter 42, he says, I repent in dust and ashes. I recognize who I am and who you are, how majestic you are. Paul, when he sees the Lord on, on the way to Damascus. John, in the book of Revelation, he bows in worship when he sees the risen, glorified Lord. 
Jacob does the same thing. When he sees God for who he is, he ha- he responds with a healthy fear of God. And so, in order to remember this occasion, Jacob sets up a memorial stone in verse 18. Notice. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. This is so that he and future generations, that his children and children's children and so on, that they would be reminded of of God and His presence. His meeting of Jacob there. And this memorial stone would be a reminder in that way. The memorial was made out of this pillow, apparently, that he had been sleeping on. It had become a symbol of consecration to the Lord. That's why he pours oil on it. That's the idea of of pouring oil is simply to consecrate it or set it apart to God as holy. Not This is not a graven image. This is not something that God despises. This is similar to our memorial of Easter Sunday or our memorial of Christ's death and and um, as we do each month in the Lord's Supper. It's not a it's not another god when we drink this cup or when we eat this bread it's a memorial a memorial the idea of a memorial is what to remind us of what has happened to commemorate what has taken place and that's what Jacob is doing here he's commemorating what has taken place this meeting with God and then in um, verse 19 he names the place he names it Bethel Verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Now, in order to understand what the meaning of Bethel is, that's actually an a, a, um, English transliteration of the Hebrew word. So they just take the Hebrew letters and they try to make them into English letters. And that's what, how it comes out. It's from two words, bait and ale. And if you look in the margin of your Bible, if you have a Bible with margins, with uh, cross-references there, in the margin of your Bible under verse 19, what does it say that Bethel means? Okay, house of God. So those two words that make up one word, Bethel, Beit El. Beit is house and El is short for Elohim, which is God. So he's, he's calling it the house of God. That the, in verse 16, surely the Lord is in this place. Verse 17, how awesome is this place? This is none other than Bethel the house of God, the gate of heaven. This is where God resides. This is the place where God has met with me. And Jacob would later remind his family of this place in chapter 35, verse 3. Remember what God had done at Bethel, the place where God met with me. So Jacob responds in worship two ways. One, by setting up a commemoration for God, a memorial. And two, by talking to God about His commitment in verses 20 through 22. Notice the foundation for Jacob's commitment, his promise back to God, verses 20 and 21. That is God's promises to him. That's the foundation. Verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, God's presence, we talked about that, if God will keep me on this journey, God's providence or His protection, we talked about that in verse 15, um, and he says that I take, if he'll keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety. So he's 
He's asking for three main things, food, clothing, and safety along his journey. Uh, that is, that God will provide for him. So these are the basis for why Jacob promises these things to God. That if, God, you will do this, then I will commit to you. And here's his promise. If God does all these things, he says in the middle of verse 21, then the Lord will be my God. Okay, so if God does all these things, then Jacob's going to be faithful to him. Now this sounds very contingent on what God will do, doesn't it? It almost sounds as if Jacob is being a little bit conniving here too. Like, if you scratch my back, God, then I'll be happy to do things for you. I'll be happy to scratch yours. But I don't think that's the case at all. And that's why I pointed out that these promises are based at His promise to God, that you will be my God. That's His promise. His promise is based on what God had already promised to Him. And so this is actually more an evidence of Jacob's faith rather than his faithlessness. And the reason I say that is because God had just promised those things to Jacob. His presence. His providential protection. And His provision. God, if You're going to do those things, then You will be my God. I will follow You wherever You go. That's the sort of mentality He's, he's making here. Jacob's not forcing God to do something here. He's simply making the promise on the basis of what God has already guaranteed. Now, what kind of implications can we make for our own lives with regard to this promise that Jacob is making? Because God has made specific promises to you as well. Those, again, are revealed to you in His Word. We need to understand the Word properly in order to see what those promises are. But God has made specific promises to you. And so how ought you to respond with promises to Him or commitments to Him because of what He has promised? And I think it would be completely right and good for you to, to say to God, God, if You will lead me, if You will provide for me as You have promised, if You will grow me into the image of Christ as You have promised to every believer, if You will continue the work that You promised that You would continue since the time that You started it in me, then You will be my God. I will persevere to the end. You know why I know I can persevere to the end? Because you've already promised those things, and I believe those promises. I believe that what you said about me is true. That God here is, is bringing upon Himself an obligation to lead me all the way until the end. And so I'm going to tap into that. I'm going to tap into that promise. God, you said you would do this, and so I'm going to pray that you do this and, and I'm going to respond to your promises by committing myself to you. As God commits Himself to us, as He loves us, as He preserves us and keeps us in Christ, then we ought to respond by keeping ourselves, Jude says, in the love of God. Jacob's commitment. Notice the content of his commitment at the end of verse 21, then the Lord will be my God. I love how he says that at the end of the last two words. He will be my God. He doesn't say he will be my parents' God. That was true. He's not just his grandparents' God. That was true. Not my, 
my school teachers, God, that's okay. Or, or the people from church, their God. No, but He's going to be my God. My personal God. That is, that I am serving Him. That I actually have a relationship with Him. Not on the basis of what my parents have seen or on the basis of what this other great Christian person has seen, but on the basis of what I've seen. I've actually had a personal encounter with God. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You will be my God. So we see His devotion to God. We also see His worship in two ways in verse 22. First, the dedication of this site to God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house that it would memorialize Jacob's meeting with God at Bethel. In the second way, he worships God. He shows his love for God is by offering of his resources 10% back to God. Of all that God gives, I will give a tenth. Israel would follow this pattern as they were commanded to do in giving back to God a tenth. And uh, and uh, this is not the only time pre-Mosaic for someone to give a tenth. Abraham did it um, to one of the kings there as well. And so this passage really comes on the heels of Jacob's conflict with his brother Esau. And God is the one who takes the initiative and encounters Jacob and reminds him of his steadfast love for him specifically. That, Jacob, I love you. I love your parents, that's that's true, but I love you, Jacob, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We ought to be encouraged and, and filled with joy because of God's desire to interact with us individually. That God desires to have a relationship with us. I mean, it's simply amazing that that we have this desire to meet with God, to be with God in heaven forever. That's a good thing. But do you realize that God wants to live with you? You're nothing special apart from Jesus Christ. You're a wretch. And I'm a wretch. I'm a wretched sinner. But God wants to dwell among His people. And that's what He's been working throughout fallen history to do. To bring himself back into place, really bring people back into a place where he can dwell among them. That's where history is leading. Where we get to the time of the millennial kingdom when Jesus reigns among us. But that's not what ultimately is going to happen or finally is going to happen. Finally, it's going to be God living among us. As we'll see in a couple of weeks in Revelation. That God makes His throne here, on, or not here, but on the new earth. And lives among His people, unhindered by any sin or death or any enemies. They'll all be done away with. Isn't it amazing that God wants to have a relationship with you? Turn in your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I said God's been working throughout fallen human history to bring us to a place where He can live among us, and here is how He spans this gap. Okay, So if you want to think in terms of the dream, the ladder, the staircase, how God who is high and lifted up spans this gap between Himself and us here down on the earth, here's the answer in John 1.51. I think Jesus alludes to this, to this story in Genesis chapter 28. 
In John chapter 1, verse 51, And He, Jesus, said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder, on the staircase, on the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus Christ, the King of glory. He is the Son of Man. He's saying, I'm the one spanning the gap. You picture these angels ministering to people, ascending to God and descending to man. You want to know how I do that? You know how, want to know how God spans that gap? It's through me. We should not be surprised by this. John 14, he says to his disciples, I am the way. I'm the only way. I'm the only ladder. I'm the truth, the life. No one comes, no one ascends and descends to the Father but through me. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul calls Christ the mediator, the one mediator, the only one who can span the gulf, who can bridge the gap between God and man because He is both God and man. He is the God-man. God has designed a way for you and I to come to Him. For Him to come to us is through Jesus Christ, our ladder, our stairway, our bridge. And so, we ought to respond like Jacob responded. When God encounters us, again, dispensationally, He does that through His Word. In this era, He does it through His Word. When He encounters us, we ought to respond like Jacob did in devotion and worship. Listen to Ross again. He says, If there is no fear of God, if there is no commitment to obey God, if there is no devotion then there is no understanding of the spiritual things of God. Written revelation of God makes believers aware of the Lord's presence and prompts them to a higher level of living. If we have truly encountered God, and if we are regularly having encounters with God through His Word, then our response ought to be one of devotion and worship. And if we're not responding in devotion and worship, then perhaps we're not encountering God. We're not seeing God for who He is as He has revealed Himself to us, as the God who is near us, who desires to have a relationship with us, who desires to, for us to live in a certain way. What you should notice in Genesis 28 is that Jacob was not seeking after God, was he? He was running. Maybe not from God, but he was running from his conflict. He was not seeking God. He was fleeing for his life. And and the good news is, for you and for me, is that God pursues us. God pursues sinners. We're never outside the scope of God's hand of God's hand of power and mercy. And so you should see yourself as Jacob. I am Jacob of the Old Testament. You are Jacob of the Old Testament. That that you and I run because of the consequences of our sins and we don't know what's coming around the next corner. But God approaches us and He reveals Himself to us in a great way. And He promises to protect us and to guide us and, and to provide for us through our bridge, our ladder, our only way, Jesus Christ, to lead us on into greater depths of godliness. Greater depths of God's mercy. Does that amaze you at all? Do you wonder in amazement at God's continual mercy in your life? Do you believe that He's working at all? Can you see His hand at work? You're not going to be able to see it with your physical eyes. 
You're not going to be able to see some cloudy type hand come down and reach and and maybe drop some money at your doorstep or, or whatever the case. You're not going to see it in that way because as believers, we live by faith, not by sight. But do you see God's hand at work in a spiritual way? Perhaps you're in despair right now because of conflict that's going on in your life. Maybe it's a result of the consequences of your own sin. Maybe you're unsure about what will happen tomorrow or next week or next year. What I'm telling you tonight is that God wants to interact with you. That He has bridged the gap between Himself and you. And He's not going to magically appear to you in your bedroom. He's not going to inscribe an image of Jesus on the tree in the backyard or on your toast when you get up in the morning. The way that He encounters you is through His Word. Are you reading it? Are you sitting under the teaching of God's Word regularly as often as you can? Are you meditating on it? Are you thinking about it any other time than today? Are you memorizing it? Are you thinking about its implication for your life and for others' lives? See, as believers, God does not desire that, that He strike us down for our sin. 2 Timothy 2 13 says, When we are faith, faithless, God remains faithful. When we are faithless, God remains faithful. David had to remind himself about this. Psalm 42 is all about that. He says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you so downcast within me? You know what he tells himself? I must hope in God, for He will yet save me, for He is my help and my provision. He is the help of my presence. He says it three times. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so, why so downcast within me? Are you there? Are you in despair right now? You need to remind your soul that God is there. You need to remind yourself that, that, that God is the one you ought to hope in. Not in your circumstances. Not in your own thinking, but in God's grace. And if you regularly struggle with, the, with God's commitment to you, then you need to remind yourself of His promises to you in His Word. That He will never leave you. That He will finish what He has started. That, that He has started a work in you and He will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Conflict often arises, but God encounters us even when we are running. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed once again at Your mercy. We don't deserve anything that we receive from You. The only thing we do deserve is what our sin brings, and that is judgment. We deserve an eternal punishment of our sin in hell forever. And yet, not only have You taken that punishment and put it on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, have nailed our deeds to, his, to, to the cross with Him, but You've also given us the joys, the blessings of knowing You, of having a relationship with You, of, of looking forward to that day when we will 
live with You forever. When we will see You face to face. And we pray that that day would come quickly. But as we pray often, we we ask for help now because we can't force that day to come any quicker. We simply can be responsible in our own Christian lives and do what we're supposed to do. So we ask for help. When conflict arises, help us to uh, to see You. Encounter us, God. Come into our lives. Intrude into our lives and show us that You're there. We know You're not going to do that in a magical way, but simply You're going to do it through Your Word. And so we pray that You'd help us to regularly be under the sound of the teaching of Your Word. We would be regularly reading and meditating and memorizing Your Word, thinking about its implications. We pray that Your truth would be burned deep into our hearts. That we would be prepared for when times of conflict come. Recognizing that You are the God who never leaves us. And that because we've seen You work in this way before, we know You're going to do it again. Certainly, You don't promise physical protection fully. That we will, we will be free from all physical ills or even physical death but You do promise spiritual protection that You will protect us fully and finally from the wiles of Satan, from the schemes of his world system that has been set up. And You've promised that You will lead us all the way to the end. And because of that promise, we commit ourselves to You, giving ourselves fully. We, we plan to see You work in our lives. We plan to follow You to the end. We plan to persevere and to see You as our God, as my God. Thank You for the example of Jacob this evening in the Old Testament. We'll see much more of his sin as we move through Genesis, but we recognize that You were gracious to him because he was chosen by You. Thank You that we can have our names written in heaven. Help us to live in light of what we have seen today. May we respond with devotion to You and worship. We ask for Your help in Jesus' name. Amen.